usually follow an introduction. I usually follow myself up on an announcement video. Well, good morning, Walloon Church. It's good to be here this morning. Um, blessed to bring God's Word to you this morning. I will give you a warning in advance, and you may want to be just taking notes because today's not a very happy, um, feel-good text that we are going to be walking through. This is week number eight of our series in the book of Judges called God to the Rescue. The further we go in the book of Judges, the, the more depressing the scenarios are going to become. I'm going to just give you a warning. This one to date is the most depressing one yet, but it gets worse. And what we're going to notice is God's people are falling further and further into a cycle of sin. It's going darker and deeper and God's judges that he sends his people actually reflect that heart of the people of God. And so today we have a text that is very revealing and exposing. And so before we get started, I want to just go ahead and pray. But I'd encourage you just to be taking notes because this may be something that, that God wants to kind of leave on your spirit for a while. And uh, I would encourage you to just have that kind of written down, what God delivers to you this morning. So would you just join me in prayer? Jesus, I ask this morning that you would sovereignly uh, deliver your word to us through these fallen lips. Use me, God, to speak um, what you are trying to say to each individual heart this morning. And I pray that um, in your grace and in your mercy that you would tenderly father us um, in a way that we desperately need. And so we pray this in your name. Amen. Have you ever tried to make a deal with God, like a transaction with God? If you do this, God, I'll do this. Um, I think sometimes in our desperation we tend to fire up just a, a prayer to God in hopes that he's interested in a transaction to get us out of this immediate crisis, or we have these rituals of prayer with God that hopefully just smooth over the situation. God, please bless this food to our body, turn these Doritos and you know uh, nachos into health food on the way down. God, please bless this food to my body. And we try, to, we try to make transactions with God, we try to see, I think a lot of times throughout history, and even in our text this morning, and in, in our own experiences, we're, te we're tempted to relate to God in this way. And this morning, we're going to open up the book of Judges, and uh, just give you a preview of chapter 10, um, we're, we're going to see the story of Jephthah. Jephthah is one of the judges of Israel, and it becomes obvious that he and all of Israel see God in this transactional way. They're trying to wheel and deal with God, try to negotiate with God, try to just use God to get what their own design was. And so that's what we have in Judges 10, 11, and 12. It's the story of an insecure thug who's so unfamiliar with the God of his people that he tries to manipulate him and use him just like everybody else in his life. So before we dive too far in, I just want to present you with a point that I believe the text is trying to make this morning, and then we'll dive into the text. The point, the main point is this, that God is not a cosmic vendor. God is wanting your surrender. God is not this, this, this fickle being in the sky that can be persuaded if you just offer him the right amount of things, or you say the right words, or you do the right rituals. Um, I think a lot of times we get ourselves in trouble, and we try to fight our own way through things, and eventually we get to the end of our rope, and uh, people have been opposing us our whole lives, or this whole scenario, and we get to the end of this, and we're like, ah, God, I'll turn to you now to help. And so we've been fighting rebellion the whole time, and I think if, if where humanity fights rebellion, um, God invites repentance. 
Right? When humanity seeks to control things, God is actually interested much more in your whole heart just being surrendered to him. Um, and so the invitation today is to choose that restoration, not by making a transaction or a deal with God, but by willingly just submitting yourself to him. God's not a cosmic vendor. God is wanting your surrender. Now the passage this morning that we're going to examine opens with the most elaborate description so far of Israel's sinfulness. It's the lowest they've stooped yet, and it shows just how much they've blended in with the Canaanite, the pagan Canaanite culture surrounding them. There were, like there is no difference between God's people and the pagans around them. They've completely turned their back on their God. And it's a terrible scenario. God's going to send a rescuer. And I, what I want to say before we jump in is this. This is a heavy word from the Lord. This, this is a convicting word from the Lord. It's a powerful word from the Lord. But please know that it comes from the tender heart of a father who is yearning for his people to be devoted to him. This, this comes from a God who, who is passionate about his own glory, and for his people to not only see that, but to reveal it to the world. But he's just as much passionate for your good. And your highest good is to be in right relationship with God. Amen? And so this, this, is, this, is, a, this is a heavy passage, a tragic passage, but it is delivered in the tenderness of the heart of a father who yearns for your highest good. So if you have your Bible, I'd invite you to join me. Judges chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 6. We're going to read this out loud. Judges 10, 6 through 10. If you can, if you're able to, join me and stand and we're going to read together. While our HDMI 1 is searching. Here we go. Source found. Jesus is the source. Amen. Um, again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. They served the images of Baal and Ashtoreth and the gods of Aram, Sidon, Moab, Ammon, and Philistia. They abandoned the Lord and no longer served him at all. So the Lord burned with an anger against Israel, and he turned them over to the Philistines and the Ammonites, who began to oppress them that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the Israelites east of the Jordan River and in the land of the Amorites, that is, in Gilead. The Ammonites also crossed to the west side of the Jordan and attacked Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. The Israelites were in great distress. Finally, they cried out to the Lord for help, saying, We have sinned against you. Because we abandoned you as our God and have served the images of Baal. Thank you. You may be seated. This is a terrible scenario. They get to the end of their rope. They cry out to God. They confess their sin. They go on to say, we'll do anything. Just rescue us. We, and so they, so they say, we will, we will surrender to you, we've sinned, punish us as you see fit, just rescue us from our enemies, and then they actually get, they put aside their foreign gods and they start serving the Lord. And the text says in verse 16, and God was grieved by their misery. God was grieved by their misery. 
So out of this bad situation, we see God sent another rescuer, a guy named Jephthah. Now, Jephthah did not fit in with anyone anywhere. Jephthah was an outcast. Jephthah was somebody who was pushed aside by his society. Um, and this narrative is, is not this romanticized view of following God. Okay? Before I unpack the character of Jephthah, please know he's not a hero. He's not someone you should aspire to be like. He's probably not someone you should name your kid after. Least of which is a terrible name. But it's a dark backdrop. It's a dark backdrop to the glory and the goodness of an ever-loving and rescuing God. Which brings us to chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now Jephthah of Gilead was a great warrior. He was the son of Gilead, but his mother was a prostitute. And Gilead's wife also had several sons, and these half-brothers grew up, and they chased Jephthah off the land. You're not going to get any of our father's inheritance, they said, for you're the son of a prostitute. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and soon he had a band of worthless rebels following him, implying he was leading them in the worthless rebellions. Um, about that time, the Ammonites began their war against Israel. So you've got this illegitimate child born to a prostitute, sent to a di- or moves to a distant land, he's cast out by his family and tribe, he's gathering outcasts around him and living a life of rebellion and crime, and to top that off, Gilead is this area on the other side of the Jordan River. So when the Israelites were crossing into the promised land, you had to cross the Jordan River to get into Israel. Gilead was before that. So the, the thought process of everybody else was like, well, they just, they've never received God's promise. They, they treated them as like other, like you're outside of God's blessing. You're, you're kind of like us, but you're not like us. They were from the other side of the track, so to speak. And so you have this guy who doesn't fit in with anyone anywhere, but yet he must have made quite a name for himself, because you look at verse 5, when the Ammonites attacked the elders, of Gilead, uh, the elders of Gilead sent for Jephthah in the land of Tob, and they said, come be our commander, help us fight the Ammonites. And you just got to imagine, they've tried every other option first. He was not the first person that they reached out to. He had a bunch of other brothers, let alone a bunch of other warriors from Gilead. Because eventually, when he does become commander, he summons an entire army from Gilead. So there there had to have been other people that they reached out to. And and this becomes one of the last-ditch resorts that they go to. And they said, "We'll, we'll let you be the commander. We'll let you do anything you want. Just come and rescue us. And I hope you're noticing this. There is a parallel. It's a very important parallel between how they reach out to God and how they reach out to Jephthah. We're in trouble. We'll do anything. Just rescue us. Say it to God. We're in trouble. We sinned. We'll do anything. We'll, we'll get rid of our idols. Just send a rescuer. Jephthah, we're in trouble. The Ammonites are oppressing us. We'll let you be the commander. We'll let you say whatever you want. Like, just come and rescue us. And, and so... There's, 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 there's some interesting parallels going on, but here's the thing that I want you to, point, to notice. The Jewish scholars actually will indicate, especially in this text, that the narrative of Jephthah is an opportunity to draw contrastive lessons about the use and misuse of God's restorative powers. 
contrastive lessons. In other words, God's actions and Jephthah's actions mirror each other, but they are mirror opposites of each other. So in terms of how they related to God's people, when God's people came to the end of their rope, God remained secure in His glory and grace, and yet Jephthah seeks out what he can get for himself. God gives an offer of mercy, and we're going to see Jephthah sees an opportunity for manipulation. And so in this whole narrative, as as the, the tension begins to rise, what we begin to see is Israel acting towards Jephthah as they act towards God, but we don't see Jephthah act towards Israel the way God acts towards Israel. You tracking? And so um, Israel makes Jephthah their commander. He, he raises up an army. I'm going to summarize the end of chapter 11 really quick. He raises up an army, and they set up this battle against Ammon. It was a territorial battle, um, and, and Jephthah is like, no, no, no. Here's where you guys messed up, and this is why we're coming in to, to defend this land. And Ammon's like, no, it's mine. And they're like, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine. And so Ammon is, is raising up this army against Israel to kind of take back some land. And, and Jephthah goes, God, if... This is, this is where he begins to start wheeling and dealing with God again. You're going to look at verse... Um, 29, at, the, at, the, at that time the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah and he went throughout the land of Gilead and Manasseh, including Mizpah and Gilead. And from there he led an army towards the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow towards God. He said, if, if you give me victory over the Ammonites, I will give the Lord whatever comes out of my house to meet me when I return in triumph. I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Now you've got to understand the construction of the language here um, in Hebrew. It's Certain English translations are going to say whether it's I will offer up whatever or I will offer up whoever. The, the original language is saying whatever comes out of my house, I will offer it up. Just generically, I will offer it up as a sacrifice to God. But I think that's not the thing that's interesting here. I think the thing that's interesting here is he says, in the way that this, this phrase is constructed, he goes, God, if you offer down victory to me, if you... If you if you deliver victory down to me, I will offer up to you whatever comes out of my house. The first thing, first it that comes out of my house. So if you offer something down to me, I will offer up something to you. Do you see how he's like trying to make a negotiation with God here? If you offer something down to me, I'll offer something up to you, God. And, and, and um, we don't hear God respond. But what we do see is this. Verse... 32, so Jephthah led his army against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave him victory. Despite Jephthah making a foolish vow, a tragic vow, with his words to God, God still has a heart to rescue his people. And so in his patient graciousness, he delivers his people from Ammon's oppression through the military leadership of Jephthah. But... Verse 34, when Jephthah returns home to Mizpah, his daughter came out to meet him, playing on a tambourine, dancing for joy. He was his one and only child, and he had no other sons or daughters. And when he saw her, he tore his clothes in anguish. Oh, my daughter, he cried, you've completely destroyed me. You've brought disaster on me, for I've made a vow to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. 
What's interesting is he has no concept of the grace of God here because he gives her months to go mourn her virginity before he fulfills his vow to God. Many, many times to, many, many days, many, many nights to just think about this and to reconsider maybe God is different from who I expected him to be. Maybe God is bigger than this just territorial Lord over just this one little area who's like all the other gods of the Canaanites. Maybe he's a little bit different and there's something bigger he's up to. He had no concept of the grace of God, so when she comes back, he offers her up. Verse 39, he returns home. The father kept the vow and she died as a virgin. So it's become a custom in Israel for the young Israelite women to go for four days each year to lament the fate of Jephthah's daughter. He thought this would please God, and he had no concept who God was. And that's not the worst part. It continues on. And then the people of Ephraim mobilized an army, and they crossed over the Jordan River to Zephon, and they sent this message. People of Ephraim going like, why didn't you invite us to help fight the Ammonites? And Jephthah's like, I did, and you didn't come. And they weren't hearing him, so they prepare to fight against Jephthah. And so in the climax of this narrative, now you have a civil war happening, God's people fighting God's people. Verse, end of verse 4. So Jephthah gathers all the men of Gilead and attacked the men of Ephraim and def- defeated them. And Jephthah captured the shallow crossings of the Jordan River and whenever a fugitive from Ephraim tried to go back across, the men of Gilead would challenge him, are you a member of the tribe of Ephraim? And they would, they would ask. And if the man said, no, I'm not, they would tell him, say this word, Shibboleth, which was just an ancient word. I don't actually know what it means. But the interesting thing here is that it was just a very obvious indicator of what dialect you had. right? So if I had somebody up here from Texas and I had somebody up here from Minnesota and asked him to address everybody here, this person would say, you all. And this person would say, howdy, y'all. All right, all right. I'm just kidding. Um, so you can tell where somebody's from by how they talk, and this is what's happening here in this moment. People from Gilead are the oppressors, essentially. They're the ones who won the battle, and, and, the, and they, because of this, they determine who is all from Ephraim, and they kill all of them. There's 42,000 brothers and sisters of Israel that went fatherless that day. As you approach the end of this story, you start to look out for a resolution, a happy ending, some sort of like bow to tie this up, and you begin to realize the closer you get to the end of the narrative, there, there, kind, of, there kind of isn't one. At least not if you're looking towards Jephthah to be the hero who kind of wraps things up. The narrative actually leaves us hanging. There's no good feeling if Jephthah is supposed to be the hero here. It just says, Jephthah judged Israel for six years, and when he died, he was buried in one of the towns of Gilead. Done. End of story. So, what is the reader supposed to see here? How is the reader supposed to find resolution to this crisis? Like, what is supposed to be here in this narrative that is tragically absent? Remember what I mentioned earlier. God's actions 
and Jephthah's actions are mirror opposites of each other. Right? So if, if Jephthah cares for Israel in the opposite way that God would, then where we find no resolution coming from Jephthah, we find the perfect resolution coming from God. If Jephthah used Israel's uh, desperation as an opportunity to exploit power and control and kind of make his own way happen, God saw Israel's crisis with the broken heart of a rejected lover longing with a painful heart for his people to return to him. This is not the God that they expected. Instead of being a transactional God that Jephthah and, and all of Israel expected, he actually answers their prayer and he rescues them. But instead of being an irrelevant pushover that they've been treating him like, he also allows them to experience the consequence of their sin while sparing them from total destruction. In other words, he's not the God that they were expecting. He's much more infinite and yet much more intimate. He's mightier and he's much more tender. See, here's the thing. People want to frame God in a time-bound and transactional way a lot of times. We want to make him in our own image, and yet he's not a God who can be tamed or negotiated with. He has no needs that we can meet. There's nothing we can offer him. Um, There's nothing that he's lacking. In other words, we cannot use him to help us feel like we're in control. Because we're not. He is. He's not the God anyone was expecting. He's not like us. He's not predictable. He's not petty. He's much more infinite, and he's much more intimate. So as we see this morning, he's not a God who responds to the temporary deals that we offer to God in this economic or transactional sense. He's he's not a cosmic vending machine that if we just put in the right prayer, we put in the right ritual, we put in the right action, we get out what we want of him. And if we're, if we're getting something lousy in our life, is maybe we just haven't like put in the right thing yet. I haven't been fasting enough. I haven't you know, sent enough money to missionaries around the world. Like, and, and it's like, if as long as I do these good things, say the, say the right prayers, say enough of the prayers, do the right penance, whatever, then God will kind of give me what I'm hoping for. He's not like us. Unlike Jephthah, he's a God who needs nothing from anyone and yet offers his entire self to everyone out of the fullness of who he already is, grace and truth, infinity and intimacy. He doesn't ask for his people to do some sort of ritual or sacrifice some sort of person. He only asks them to give him what he's already given, which is all of themselves. So what should be here at the end of the text that's tragically absent? Repentance. A wholehearted turn to God. There was no care for God's people from Jephthah. There's no shepherding them towards God. There's no call from Jephthah for God's people to return to him and surrender themselves to him and and wholly give their entire lives to him. There's none of that. There's only a disgusting misuse of the blessing and restorative power of God. 
Jephthah got caught up fighting rebellion instead of fostering repentance. And so the encouragement that we see in the text this morning is God is not a cosmic vendor. God is wanting your surrender. He's not somebody that if I just put the right amount in, I'll get what I want out. No, the only thing that I'm called upon to offer God is just all of me. You know, I used to pray that God would would bless me no matter what I was about to do. In the times when I felt like he wasn't answering those prayers, I was tempted to do a little extra, you know, to get God's attention, to curry a little bit more of God's favor. But he's not the God I was expecting. You know, instead of withholding blessings from me until I did the right things or said the right words, what I, what I had to realize was the blessings were already mine in Christ. They were just already laid out along a path, and that path is called surrender and obedience to God. Right? I, I, I used to walk a different path, want to run things my own way, fighting my own battles, negotiating things for my own purpose, and I'd be like, God, just put those blessings along the path that I'm going on right now. And God says, no, 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 Brent, those blessings are already yours. Jesus Christ, when he died and rose again, is seated at the right hand of the Father and is interceding for you daily. He's already secured those blessings for you on your behalf. Those blessings have your name on them in Jesus Christ. They're just laid out along a different path. And it's the path called surrender. It's the path called obedience. It's the path called, I'm not trying to make my life about me. God is not a cosmic vendor. God was wanting my surrender. He was waiting for me to give myself completely over to him instead of trying to make a deal with him. And Once I started following him with my whole heart, that's when I began to see the blessings he had been promising. See the victory, the freedom, and the restoration? It's all there. It's been available the whole time. It's, it's, It's on the path of repentance and surrender, though. It's not on the path of making your life about you. Choose that path. Like choose God's restoration. You've been trying to make God fit into your plans and your purposes for so long. You've been bumping up against setback and struggle for too long. You've been trying to maintain some kind of control and, and artificial stability, and it's just not working. The invitation is to surrender to God, who's more profound than you ever expected. Give yourself over to the one who is, who is infinite and yet intimate. He's asking for you to stop fighting for control and surrender and turn to him. He's not a cosmic vendor. He's wanting your surrender. So I want to, as we close, I want to make three observations from the text. Three things that I believe God is wanting to say to Wallen Lake Community Church this week. The first one is this, choose repentance or face silence. You might have noticed as you're reading this text, God is strangely very silent. You don't hear words from God in this text this morning. During his rise to leadership, during his outrageous sacrifice of his only daughter, in the, in the brutal... It's just slaughter of all the Ephraimite brothers just screams for an explanation. Where is God in all of this? 
he was silent, but he was grieving. See, God's silence is not a good thing. God is rarely in the business of actively punishing God's, actively punishing people. Instead, you need to notice about God. Over the course of continual correction and then rejection, over the course of God calling you to Himself, God asking you to surrender, God, God putting it out there saying, repent, turn to me. And eventually you just keep putting him off, putting him off and saying, someday, someday, not today. Over the course of continual correction and then rejection, he will eventually say, okay, you want it your way? Have it your way. And if that ever happens, do not be glad. That is God and his tender way of letting you experience the natural consequences of your own sin. Oh yeah, your, your sin has consequences, probably more than you even know. You just have not experienced a ton of them yet because God is he's kind and He's compassionate and He's tenderhearted and He's full of mercy. And kind of like Peter said in 2 Peter 3, 9, He's patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but He wants everyone to, be, to, to repent. His tender heart is yearning for you to turn back to Him. You think you're just getting away with it. No, no, no. God is just withholding the consequences while he calls you back to, your, to himself, calls you out of your sin. But if the line ever goes silent, don't rejoice. That's not good news. You, you, you don't want to hear the silence. When God sees that you have no intention of answering his call, his heart grieves and it breaks and it bleeds, but he is a gentleman. He won't force you. He will eventually have you, let you have your way which is a way that does not lead to life. And you have today. You hear the call today. Choose repentance. I encourage you, don't face silence. This is God's mercy. Number one, choose repentance or face silence. Number two, from the text I see the encouragement to magnify your gift. Magnify God with your gift, I'm sorry. Magnify God with your gift. Don't manipulate him. Okay? You'll notice that Jephthah eventually gained the support of his people and he was empowered by the Spirit of God. He possessed tremendous potential for greatness. But ironically, the man whose gift from God was in how he used his words to rally people for a great cause eventually fell prey to foolish utterance absolutely foolish words he used this spirit filled gift of God for his own deals and negotiations and battles and purposes that's not what it was given to him for and you've been divinely empowered with special abilities for the glory of God and for the good of others. The Bible is very clear. For everybody who's, who's saved and filled with the Holy Spirit, they have a special gift. And it's given with specific intention. 
God did not just reach his hand down into the candy barrel of talent and ability and just fling it into the crowd and be like, here you go, I don't know who it's going to land on. Oh, Brad, you got special abilities to preach and to teach. Okay, well, uh, sweet, um, you know, I, get out there and try it out. Good luck, buddy. No, 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 you, you and I were intricately designed and shaped and crafted and wired with a purpose for a purpose. You were given a gift and its first and its highest use is to make God look great to a world that has a wrong view of Him. Your gift is given to you to magnify God. See, the world around us sees God as this, this petty and irrelevant and transactional kind of being who's cold and distant. But he can be persuaded to intervene in your life when you, you know, need him to if you offer him the right bribe. That's not a God of much glory or grace. No, that's an irrelevant God who isn't really worth much of our time and our attention. Why? Because he looks a lot like us. And our world has this view of God until you come along. Divinely empowered with a special gift to show the world the glory of God and offer His tender grace. That's why you've been gifted the way you are. It's not on accident. And some of you have been investing that gift into God's kingdom in amazing ways. The world watches you out of wonderful curiosity, stunned by the divine power working in plain, normal, ordinary you. And God is magnified in your life, and he is exalted, and the people in your life are blessed. But there are others who have been wasting their gift. They think that the reason they have the talents and the abilities and the opportunities they have is to enjoy life and to get everyone to focus on the center of their universe, which is themselves, and this is a tragedy. This is a big waste of so much glory. You've taken something that you didn't make, that you didn't earn, that you didn't even deserve, and you used it to get everybody else in your life, including God, to revolve around you. Can I urge you from the authority of the text this morning, please repent. Give God his attention back. The gift you have is not for you. The opportunities you have are not for you. Magnify God with your gift. Don't manipulate him. Because God's not a cosmic vendor. No, no, no. God is wanting your surrender. Number three, and this is my final point, flip the script, not just the page. In other words, let God rewrite your story and just, instead of just using him to get to the next chapter. This is an invitation to total surrender. See, Jephthah was merely a portrait of the heart of Israel. Using God only when he was convenient. And every time they were in trouble and they needed divine assistance, they tried it God's way for a bit. But once they were out of trouble, total devotion and surrender just didn't seem that interesting to them. He was trying to get to the next page in his story. And if he needed to use God for that, okay, fine. 
And, and I think what we have in Jephthah's story is maybe a little too relatable. At least I think it is for me. Jephthah was expecting God to send a blessing down in response to what he offered up. But that's not how it works with God. He's not the God that, that I expected. He's not the God that any of us expected. In God's economy, things go the other way around. God already sent himself down. God already gave completely of himself and emptied himself on our behalf. And what he asks of us is simply the same thing, to offer ourselves completely up to him and empty ourselves on his behalf. He's wanting total surrender. And I want to I call you to make a decision today. I think I might be speaking to two different groups of people, but I want to call you to make a decision today. For those who have never surrendered their lives to the God who came down to us, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, fully God, came down to earth not only to live among us and show us the way and to, to be a great example and, and, and to, to teach, but also to take our sin upon himself. See, when Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago, what was really happening was that God was punishing Jesus for all the sin that you should be punished with, for. Like all the, all the sin and the garbage and stuff I've done in my own life, and all the ways that I've offended God and, and marred my relationship with God, I should have had to pay for all of that sin. And yet God punished Jesus for all of that, for everybody. And the invitation is to put your faith in that Jesus. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth, this is Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Saved from what? Saved from having to pay for all of that sin by yourself and also saved to a relationship with God which is the greatest and highest good in your life. The invitation is to put your faith in Jesus to say, I believe that you did that for me. That you died so my sins could be forgiven, you rose again so I could have new life. And to confess Him as Lord, to fully surrender to Him. No half-hearted Christianity here. There will come a day when the line goes silent. The voice of God is calling you today. Please don't put Him off. Today is the best time to ask God to forgive you and to trust in Him for your salvation and to surrender Him to, as Lord. Surrender to Him as Lord of your life. So if you've never put your faith in Jesus, today is the day to do that. To confess with your mouth that he is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. For those of you who have believed in Jesus, however, the invitation is to stop holding back from God. Like give yourself completely to him. Just use God to get to the next chapter. Let him rewrite the whole story. Let him be the one who is the hero. Let him be the one who takes charge. Let him be the one who rescues you. He's tender. He's compassionate. He's patient. He is waiting. He's withholding consequence. He wants you to be saved. He wants you to experience his grace and his mercy. And it's open and, and, and you're invited. You're invited to it today. 
please don't wait for the line to go silent. Today is the day to give yourself away to the God who made a way. Let's pray. God, we stand here in this moment surrounded by your mercy, swimming in an ocean of grace. God, I, I pray that, that each heart here today would be bent towards you, would be softened and be beckoned by your spirit, that you'd be individually working in each one of our hearts, calling us to lay our lives down for your sake. Please open our eyes to see your grace. Please open up our hearts. Soften our hearts. Break down the walls in our hearts, God, that we've put up because of so many insecurities and, and heartbreaks and failures in this life. God, I, I pray that you would come and mend that and, and, and mend the broken pieces and heal and restore as we give ourselves completely to you. Oh God, help us to stop wheeling and dealing with you. Stop trying to negotiate a deal. Give us faith, God. Give us faith to go fully all in for you. Because you did that for us. We praise you for your goodness. And we ask for your grace to draw us to yourself today.